Hey everyone, this is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Damon Stith, who is a teacher at SilentSword.org, specialising in African martial arts, and you can find him at SilentSword.org, or you can search him for him on YouTube at Damon Stith, D-A-M-O-N-S-T-I-T-H, and there should be an apostrophe between the A and the M in Damon. And you can also find him by searching for Historical African Martial Arts Association. So without further ado, Damon, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Well, thanks for coming along. Now, my first question is usually the same, and that is, whereabouts in the world are you? I am currently living in Austin, Texas, in the United States of America. Lovely. Uh, I actually have been to Texas a few times, but I've always wanted to go to Austin and never quite made it. And I'm gathering a longer and longer friends list of friends who live in Austin, including someone I went to school with like nearly 40 years ago. So I am past due a visit. Um, now, you're best known for your research into African martial arts. So how did that actually get started? Tell us the story. Okay, so this is a long, a long circular story. So we have time. Um, <laughs> so the um, the 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 fast version of it, and then I'll, I'll I'll get into some of the details. The quick version of it is, I started off um, as a kid, eh, really into martial arts, and. Um, I transitioned from East Asian martial arts uh, to studying. Well, hold on, let me slow. Let me slow down. Let me say this. So, I started in um, in in a traditional Okinawan karate uh, shorinru, and um, I had the opportunity to train in shor- uh, train in Okinawa. My father was in the military, and um, he was stationed there for a few years. So, I went I went there and got to train train in Okinawa. Wow. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, while I was there, totally by accident, you know, the gods or fate or whatever, I was doing. A, I, at the same time, I was really into Lord of the Rings, right? So I remember I went to the uh, the library and uh, Kadena Air Force Base, and I was looking up, you know, books on Lord of the Rings, and I came across this book called The Book of Five Rings. Oh yes. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. So um, I got the book. And, um, you know, I'm 13 years old and I'm reading Miyamoto Musashi's uh, Gorin show. And what really struck me um, about the about the book and what he was saying, because I guess I was into martial arts, but I really it really took me it really. um, What is the word? He gave me a different perspective on the martial artists as in incorporating and embodying like a number of different skills and attributes that were somewhat related to fighting, but more so related towards your, towards the character and the poise of the, of the, the warrior, if you will. Um, yeah. And that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really, that really um, changed the way I saw martial arts. I started seeing it as a form of like self-expression and, you know, from that point, um, the second book that kind of changed me was the uh, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, um, which really opened my eyes to not only as martial arts as a form of self expression, but it it opened up the world 
the world of martial arts to me in that at that time, you know, martial arts were divided, were, um, you know, considered just to be uh, specialized fighting arts from East Asia. And um, Jeet Kune Do started to incorporate fighting arts from different parts of the world. So these are the first time I was hearing about like Savat or, you know, Muay Thai or Kali or Silat. And uh, that really, that really intrigued me that there were other fighting arts around the world that were not East Asian. So I started getting into uh, Jeet Kune Do and particularly the Southeast Asian arts, because at the same time, um, I'm also developing this curiosity about um, about Africa, African history, and I'm looking, um, I'm I'm seeing these these Southeast Asian art forms that embody fighting, but they also embody like ritual and certain cultural practice. Yeah, all martial arts are cultural. Yes, I mean, indeed. They're, they're, they're an expression of the culture from which they come. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, like when when you get like um when you get some of the, the the fighting arts that are a little more common in America they're not that's not that's not as apparent you know what i'm saying sure you know yeah, yeah. but especially like something like silat um or muay thai that has like you know music and it has like these ritualized stances and positions and postures it's more it was very very different than than what i was accustomed to so um, I got into Southeast Asian martial arts through Jeet Kune Do. And um, at that time, roughly around the same time, um, I came across uh, Capoeira. And Capoeira was really interesting because I really connected to it. Um, the movement and something, even though I didn't know much about its history or where it came from, the practitioners, most of the, the the practitioners were people of African descent, and it it kind of spoke to me in that way. So I started delving into into capoeira, you know, getting getting deep into it, and I learned that it was a practice that was an extension of older uh, Central African fighting forms, and so. I started to see with Capoeira that one, it wasn't just this like um, this this uh, what, how would I say it, it wasn't just a a a freak accident that these that this fighting art had developed in Brazil like it was like this chance happening and actually throughout the African diaspora there were lots of fighting arts that were that were practiced that kind of had the similar a similarity in its form and in its function. And to me, that spoke to, you know, this is a, a larger, pretty strong tradition that was being brought over from West and Central Africa, you know, specifically from Central Africa. So Capoeira was my entry into African-based fighting arts because I went looking for, once I saw that there were more fighting arts that were related to Capoeira in the, in, uh, the, in the Western Atlantic, I started looking for parent arts on the continent. Okay. What did you find? Well, I found a lot. Um, I found that um, at least for, for the, the arts that were brought to the new world, um, a lot of them are Congo based Bantu arts from central Africa. Um, 
so um so they and it goes into uh and i think this is probably best articulated by um uh tj uh, professor tj dash obi's book uh fighting for honor where uh during the slave trade uh, many of the people that were captured and sold as slaves were, you know, prisoners of war, and they brought with them these indigenous forms of fighting uh, to the Americas. Uh, one interesting thing about uh, the Congolese style of warfare and style of fighting is that um, their armies didn't didn't really move in like these mass coordinated formations that we kind of envision like when we're seeing like Alexander the Great moving on a battlefield. Um, they, they were primarily uh, a light infantry, um, light infantry and very few of them carried shields. So what they did oh, yeah. is they developed a, um, a way of negating and voiding attacks. And they would do these, they would, they would, hone these skills through these war dances or these games that they would play. So one war dance was in Sanga, which um, according to the uh, Jesuit priest who witnessed this, 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 uh, this dance, he mentioned that uh, the, the, the warriors would do these dances like a military review that consisted of like uh, a thousand twists and turns and they were able to, you know, avoid being, you know, avoid, you know, spears and arrows and, and being hit or cut by, by swords or, or whatnot. And then the other practice was the Ngolo, which was a, which is the zebra dance. And these are, these are two of the root arts for, for, for Capoeira in a sense, or believed to be. And in this, it's kind of the same thing in that it, it's a practice where the legs are primarily used for kicking and the hands are for support or they're using open, like a, for open hand, never really closed fist. But the idea is to develop this, this idea, this, this, this uh, corporal dexterity, this ability to do use dynamic evasions. And this is exactly what you see in Capoeira, this avoidance of like blocking and stopping an attack. But this and this emphasis on blending, voiding, and rolling—you know—under, over, or around these attacks. I, I've done a bit of sparring with some capoeira guys, before, <laughs> and it's um, it's a really interesting experience. It's like what you're doing should not work, and yet somehow I can't hit you. How do yeah. you do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, see, going back to their going back to their their army to their uh, their the way they fought also. Part of the reason why they develop these 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 uh act, these military activities is because, again, on the battlefield, they a, a large part of them weren't using shields, and so the way that they would arrange themselves on the battlefield would be in these uh loose, these loose lines, these loose skirmishing lines that allowed for personal maneuver, and so they would they would there was a there was a initial phase where arrows and you know archery phase and then they would close in you know in close quarters and they did this in a, in a loose order so um you find a lot of that that mentality that uh that that strategy you know carry over into the fighting arts in the african diaspora um but uh moving 
moving like along the continent, I mean, I found a lot of, um, I think what happens, I had to adjust what I was looking for. Cause you know, you're kind of looking for African Kung Fu at first. Yeah. And it's not really that it's not what you're, what you're going to find. Um, you're going to okay. find, so what do you find? Well, you, you'll find in my, what I found and not saying that I found everything, but, um, as far as living traditions go, you'll find, you know, combat sports and, uh, physical activities that are used either as like a way for training for battle, or if there's an, a region where they're not fighting like that anymore, it's, it has like a, a, uh, cultural, uh, spiritual kind of like a folk dance, maybe say it one more time. Uh, it, so it operates in the same sort of space as a folk dance. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kind of the tendency. What you see is when when a fighting art is no longer viable um, on the battlefield, it either becomes like a like a sport or some kind of like folk practice or um, some type of game. And I think that's kind of what you'll what what and we see what, that in European arts as well. I mean, fencing became a, a sport, right? And there are sword dances in various parts of Europe that are clearly related to older forms of swordsmanship, but they have been converted over the centuries into dances. Yeah, exactly. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so just, uh, I, I found that wrestling of course is a very universal fighting art, uh, throughout the world. Um, especially in Africa, um, stick fighting as well was a common, uh, a very common, um, uh, nearly universal practice on the continent, and the stick was usually a um, a a softer or softer uh, training weapon for something more lethal. Whether it's in depending on the culture, if it's a sword or if it's an axe or if it's a fighting stick, that's either a club, you know, a, a mace or a club or or whatnot. So. Um, in some areas, yeah, like a knob carry on. I've 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 handled some Zulu weapons before. That's the closest I've ever got to African martial arts. And yeah, I would not want to get hit over the head with a knob curry. No, yeah, I've um I make uh training weapons, and I've been uh I've had a few people commission uh some uh gosh, they're knob carries, but they're like they're they're like based off of Umbaku staff from Black Panther, so they're like knob carries, like on um you know, on steroids. So they're six feet tall, you know, and I'm like, the people are going to use these to like spar. It's like friends don't hit each other with stuff like this. I'm sorry. Like, it's- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have the same problem with real quarter staffs is if you're practicing a, with a quarter staff, there is no, um, sort of gentle fencing version of it. And the same with poleaxes, a, a blunt poleaxe is called a warhammer. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really help much. Right. Uh, now, you, br- you brought up Black Panther. So, um, let me, yeah, great film. And it's done wonders for sort of getting the idea of African culture sort of in, more into sort of mainstream Marvel universe. Um, is there any historical basis in any of the martial arts or any of the weapons that we, we saw in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, not so much in the fighting, you know what I'm saying? And, and they, I can't, don't really blame them for that. But uh, definitely, like, in the weapons, um, 
they uh, use quite a few uh, like short swords and um, knives that were inspired by Central African weapons. Um, I'm trying to remember uh, what is it? Of course, the spear, the 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 spear and shield that T'Challa is fighting with is like typical, you know, Nguni Zulu uh, shield shield and Ikhwa. But um, the uh, Killmonger's sword, it looks like a blend between a um, a Ilwun uh, style sword from the uh, from Central Africa, from like the Kuba and, and Luba people in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. It looks like a blend between an Ilwun with that spatula shape tip. And uh, there's another sword, I believe it's like Central Africa, Africa as far as its weapons, is not my strong point. But I, I believe it's the the Tetella Tetella sword, Tetella knives. Um, they have that 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 spatula shape or rounded tip um, into their swords, uh, and it, it was really reminiscent of that. Other than that, I think the Dora Milaje their spearheads look like some of the Central African spears um, that spearheads that I've seen. And um, I can't. Oh, and of course, I'm a, that's silly of me. Um, the border tribe they use these sickle swords that were, you know, pretty much like mm. Mbele's. Cool. Um, now you, you just mentioned a whole load of weapons that I know absolutely nothing about. So what I'm going to do is when I get this episode transcribed, I will send this section to you. You can correct my spelling for all of these weapons and then I will find examples of them online and I'll stick all of that in the show notes. So listeners who are going, um, what the hell did he just say? Um, <laughs> can go to the show notes and they will, these, these words will be spelled out correctly and with pictures where I can find them of the weapons that we're talking about, which, which should help. Because um, yeah, this is this is this is great. What I was hoping with this interview is that you would kind of seriously geek out onto into these areas of martial arts, which it's kind of obvious that they must have existed, but I personally know nothing about. And I think most people doing historical martial arts, certainly in Europe and the States, know nothing about. So we are we are very very much on topic. So, um, so how do you actually go about? recreating these arts what is what is the process because I, I don't think you're working terribly much from written sources right right so um yeah and that's the thing so we approach it in a number of ways right so the first thing is um depending on the region uh is going to the, the region is going to give you certain tools uh to help with at least understanding its physical culture so for example a good place to start especially like if you want to have a lot of because we we don't have a lot of written written information especially about like fighting techniques so we have to use um secondary sources we use like living traditions we'll use artwork um we'll use uh depending on again on the region sometimes you'll get a um a uh, an explorer's account of a battle or duel or fight or weapons being used so we use that kind of information um 
we try to uh, construct the weapons and then, um, you know, especially if it's a, a weapon with a very unique design and shape, you know, which that shape um, and for us informs informs us on how it could possibly be used. Um, right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so it's I pretty mean, much how we approach it for, like, for example, Viking martial arts, where we don't have much in the way of written records and nothing to actually tell us precisely how the weapons were used. Exactly. We sort of figure it out from kind of cultural echoes and references in in poems and um, just also just, just getting reproductions of the weapons or handling originals in museums and going, okay, if you were dressed like this and wearing these weapons and I'm dressed like this wearing with these weapons, how would I murder you? Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, cert- certain things are always true. Right. Like, like, like leverage and like getting hit in the head with a big sword is a really bad plan. Um, so from that, you can sort of figure out something about right, how right. things must have been. Okay. Yeah. I, I think for us, like, um, and what I what I have to do for myself is like I have to silence the martial artist in me in some t- in some cases because there's you know there's two things that's happening right like there's the there's the the innovative martial artist that's in me and then there's the person who's trying to like see like what was there without the movement of the martial right. art you know clouding it right but that it it helps to have these already to have like the, um, the ability to wield weapons and to move your body because it, in my opinion, it helps me to, to better, um, digest the information. But so I try not to like overly like insert, you know, or martialize the, what I'm doing, I think very simply. And, um, I try to work from a very, uh, simple, uh, basic concept of like you said, mm-hmm. you have this, I have that. I'm trying to kill you or wound you, and you're trying to kill me and wound me with my tools and your tools. How can I do that in the simplest way possible? And that's kind of what gives me my um, my control when I'm when I'm working through some of this stuff. Right. What's really crazy and kind of dark. Because um, I, I cover a couple of regions, and one of my regions is uh, ancient Egypt. Um, so with Egypt, there aren't any like fight manuals per se in Egypt. Sure, there's tons of artwork, you know, and some of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, but some of it is really quite compelling, especially when we're looking at like um, how well they depicted uh, Egyptian wrestling. Like it, it. It that's that's one of my current projects now is I'm working on a book on um, a source book on Egyptian martial arts and combat sports and military traditions, and uh, so I've been okay. I've been um, digesting the um, the uh, uh, the wall art of Beni Hassan, and like I tell people, it's not so much that you look that the Egyptians, you know, wrestled any different than the way we wrestle today. What's freaking amazing is that 5,000 years ago you can see the same wrestling holes that we do today in various styles of wrestling whether it's whether it's uh folk whether it's catch whether it's like judo jiu-jitsu 
Like the Egyptians were doing some things that were very similar to that back then. And it's really amazing to see that this is what that they had were were doing this. Um, yeah, and the artwork is is often surprisingly reliable. Uh, like, for example, I, I'm also into woodwork and particularly traditional woodwork. And I've seen like Egyptian images of tools that I recognize like there's a glue pot and we know what kind of glue they use because they've done analysis on it. And it's exactly the same as the glue that was being used in Europe like 150 years ago. Yeah. Um, the way they're using their planes, how the planes are built, those basic designs really haven't changed since right. then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I think, I think we can, you know, in, in some cases, at least the artwork is I think, really surprisingly reliable. Yeah. And so, so for example, um, to kind of like just to build off what you said. So um, the Egyptians, so apart from, so apart from wrestling, stick fighting was one of the most documented uh, combat sports, martial arts that the Egyptians practice. And they practice uh, for them, stick fighting existed, or they practice it in at least four modalities. They use long sticks. They use a uh, stick and plank and a plank style shield. Uh, they use single stick and then they use double stick, right? What's really amazing is that you'll find um, when you find like a living tradition, like the Nuba people in Sudan who practice, uh, I don't think they do double stick, but they practice long stick and they practice single stick. And what's really, really amazing is they practice, they practice stick, stick fighting with a plank shield strapped to the arm, just like the Egyptians. And wow. yeah, and so for most shields in Africa are center grip shields, and the Egyptians used um, they use a center grip shield in the New Kingdom, but in the Middle Kingdom they were using you know shields that were strapped to the to the sh- to the arm. Um, so it's amazing to see a uh, a culture that was one from from the from the same area and in contact with the ancient Egyptians practicing um, quite a few of the same combat sports that the Egyptians did. And um, this shield and stick, you know, it's amazing to see, to see that they, that it's, it's actually, it's, it's very reminiscent of what you see in the iconography. So, um, and that's that sweet spot for us where we can see like the, what the artwork depicts and then we can see like an echo of it in a living tradition, and we can use that to help us better understand what what was there. And of course, you know, like I always say, and what's really cool about this process is that I don't have to be necessarily the master and the the um, the reservoir of all wisdom and all knowledge. Right, right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I totally know. <laughs> I, a lot of students will want you to be that and you have to res- you have to sort of educate them into not expecting it yeah yeah most definitely but i like the um i like the um the ability to be to to experiment and be wrong yeah and have to like um and go back to the drawing board and come up with a new a new theory or you get some new bit of information that completely like throws your whole foundation off whack and you have to readjust and I think that 
that is um, a very uh, humbling uh, position to be in. And I think at least like for African martial arts, like I think it's the best place for us to be in because there is a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, it's like the wild West, you know what I'm saying? So um, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of gatekeepers and there are a lot of people who are professing to know certain things and uh, they're they're not really practicing like intellectual honesty, and it really makes it really makes it difficult for um for those of us who are trying to like legitimately see what was there. It makes it difficult for us to have credibility. So that that was very diplomatically said. Yes, <laughs> I think I know what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's it, it's so important that. Basically, we're doing the same sort of thing as or if, if we do what we're doing properly, it has a lot in common with scientific research where you run experiments. And if the experiment concludes that this hypothesis is wrong, it is a successful experiment. It just didn't give you the results that you wanted. Right. Right. But it's still, if, if it if it proves or disproves the hypothesis, the experiment is successful. If it doesn't if it doesn't give credence to or undermine the hypothesis, then the experiment was useless. So you're always once you have a theory, what you have to do is try and disprove it. Right. Yeah. And and if you're if you're any good at that, you'll disprove your theories at least as often as you prove them. Yeah. So I mean this this, this is just this is just the uh the process that we have to embrace is we are definitely wrong, but hopefully we are less wrong now than we were last year. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a weird right? place. That's a weird place for martial artists to be in, though. Like, like you said, your students, um, they they have a hard time with that. That's a hard that's a hard concept to um, for them. Okay, to, I, I have a solution for this. I mean, I've I've been teaching these these arts for like twenty years now, and what I do, and I have done for years, maybe a decade by now, is on the first day of the beginners course, I introduce them to the book that we're working from. Which okay, this is a little bit different for you, but the, the principle is the same. You introduce the students to the idea that this is not your own martial art that you are teaching them because you are the master and it's your art, and so what you say goes. You are instead interpreting a martial art that came before and for which you don't have a living teacher. And so here are the sources. Here are what we're doing is we are interpreting these sources and trying to make these things work. And then um I, I literally, I, I, I set them up and I, I tell them that sometimes we'll be doing a thing and I say, this is how it is in the book. And you go and have a look at the book and you go, well, hang on, guy. Um, you've got your right foot forward and Fiore here has got his left foot forward. So which is it and why? And I, I try and build in the expectation in the students that they will be rewarded for finding a difference between what I'm saying and what the book says. Right. So if they manage to prove right. me wrong, good for them. That's that is that is good student behavior, because, of course, a lot of students have been brought up in schools where to prove the teacher wrong is to get kicked out of class and put in detention and bad things happen. Whereas for us, right, you want students like that who will call you on these things so that you know, so that you'll see things that you missed or so that you go, well, and some, sometimes the explanation is, you know, 
well, okay, yes, I've got my right foot forward because we're not doing that exact play. We are seeing how it changes the play if we do it from the other side, for instance. Right. Right. So, or sometimes it's, yep, you're absolutely right. I should be, I should have had a foot forward. My bad. Well, well, well caught out. Excellent. Carry on. Yeah. Um, but just building that expectation in from the very beginning means that students are, f- it, the culture is, we're all doing this research together and we will all get better together um, rather than guy's word is law and he's always right. And which, 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 okay. I have, I have been in many martial arts classes where the teacher's word was law. You don't argue, disagree or ask questions. You just do as you're told. And that's that. Right. And I, I don't think that's a very useful it's very useful when training soldiers, right? Because because obedience is the first virtue of a, of a soldier, right? right? It's not so useful when you're training historical martial artists, and I don't think it's useful when you're training duelists either. Right. Agree. Um, yeah. So, oh, I, you mentioned you're writing a book on Egyptian martial arts. Can I just just float in here? Can I get you to promise us publicly that you'll come back on the show when it's ready and tell us all about it? Yes, I promise. It, I, may be, <laughs> I may be 80 years old when I'm done with that it. That doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, cause that, that sounds like a really, really interesting um, uh, project. And I, I, hope it, I hope it comes to fruition quickly because I'm dying to read it. Okay. Yeah. Can I get dark real fast? Yeah, go ahead. About Egypt. So yeah. I had mentioned that there's no fight books, right? Right. But. And one other part of our research is like uh, battlefield forensics. Right. So um, the Egyptians didn't write a fight manual, but they did write a surgical manual on how to treat battlefield wounds. Oh, and, my God. That's so cool. Yeah. No, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is so cool. But that will tell you how they got the injuries will tell you. It's, 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 yes. it's um, like um, CSI. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you can tell what kind of weapon it was and what the angle it was coming in at, and yeah, what damage. yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may be dark for some people, but to me, that's just jam. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I should mention to the listeners that I first met you at Sword Squatch last year, and actually, this podcast interview is kind of. The conversation I wanted to have with you then, but it being a pub, a public event and loads of people, and we sort of got started talking about it and then got pulled away to other things. And so it's nice to be able to, you know, get back to that. But I was quite annoyed initially because I was scheduled to teach opposite one of your classes, which I was otherwise hoping to take. Um, but I managed to watch some of the class. And having watched some of the class, I was, I was kind of glad I didn't end up taking it because i don't think i'd have been able to walk for about a week afterwards <laughs> because it was very heavy on the legs which yeah <laughs> which is awesome so um can i ask you something about um how you train what you do for physical conditioning um and what the training in these african arts that you teach sort of looks like gotcha yeah yeah okay so um All right. So um, what we do for conditioning 
And so a lot of the a lot of the sword arts that we practice, like in the Western Sahel, I mean, in the in the um, in West Africa, uh, I should say the the Sahel is the the region between the Sahara and the the more tropical regions of West Africa, and it also applies to East Africa. So um, what you find is like groups like the Tuareg, uh, the Hausa. Uh, even to the further east, like the Haldandoa, the Beja, they they do sword dances and a lot of their ritualized sparring in a very low crouch position, right? So a lot of their dances um, involve like this really low center of gravity um, and then like these explosive, like jumping, hopping movements. So what I try to do is I try to incorporate, you know, either those movements from the dance or movements inspired from the dance as a way of like physically conditioning the body. Um, I have a theory that um, I don't, I think from what I have observed and I haven't seen a lot as far as like, you know, I'm, I'm definitely the, the blind man touching the elephant's trunk and telling you what I see what I think the elephant is based off of my touch. But from what I've experienced, um, I think that the way that they approach like fighting and training for fighting was um, in a very simple way. So I don't think that they practice, you know, very complicated footwork. Like I think the footwork and from what I've seen, the footwork is very simple. You have like, you know, small incremental adjustment steps that they make when they're sparring or, They'll do, you know, like passing steps, you know, um, you know, taking the the rear leg, the rear side forward to get into range. Um, the the Tuareg will do like a a an interesting like cross step um, that I've noticed in some of their sparring, but for the most part, it's pretty it's pretty simple. Um, and I think that the way that they uh, physically prepare you prepared the body, prepared you to be able to move in a direction that you needed to was through these, these very um, rigorous dances, these sword dances that involve, like I said, like lots of explosive movement, lots of crouching and then rising really fast, all these things to develop this explosiveness. And I feel like that, that physical culture was just as much a part of the, the training then, you know, saying like, okay, when your opponent attacks steps here, then you step here. Yeah. And, sure. Yeah. So I try to incorporate as much of that kind of stuff and that concept into like, into my training. Um, what I find sometimes with, with, and, you know, coming from a cop weather background where we're constantly moving. Right. Yep. Um, what I and found, upside down a lot of the time, and upside down a lot of the time. <laughs> what what I found is that um, if I let my people, if I'm doing the sword, it's easy to kind of coast with the sword. You know, I can I can just kind of sit back and just do my thing, and it's yeah. You know, that, that that is actually my preferred way of doing things. You know, I'm <laughs> very lazy, and the whole point of having a sword, as I, as I see it, it's a labor saving device. And if I can basically stand still and watch my opponent charge their face onto my point, I'm happy. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to break a sweat. I just want to kill people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I understand and I respect that. <laughs> um, but, but to get there, you have to get pretty fit and strong or whatever, and learn all of this sort of 
you know learn all the physical stuff and get physically fit i i totally appreciate that and and any any of my students will tell you that we do do a fair bit of footwork yeah um so but yeah as a as a as a goal i think i think lazy fighting is 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 where where i'm at but um i think uh, think we also have to like we have to work a little harder um in certain aspects because you know again a lot of it a lot of this a lot of the fighting you know uh even though we have shields that serve as our body armor we're we're there's still quite a a lot of movement of the body behind the shield uh just because you know it's almost like we're we we want to hit of course everyone wants to hit and not be hit, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, you know, preferably, you know, I tend to follow that the defense pyramid, you know, of blocking, parrying, evasion, um, interception, that kind of idea. And so, like, I, there's a really interesting drill we do, sparring drill that we do. And um, what what it is is like I tell my students, like, I let them go around where they can parry and they can use they can use. they can use the sword for defense Mm -hmm. and then on the other end of that i'm like okay these next couple of rounds you guys can't um you can't you can't use your sword uh to defend you have to use your movement and then i punished them i punished them for um making you know using their sword to um for defense i know this sounds terrible we were just talking about how you know I'm not the kung fu master, and I don't have all the. <laughs> yeah, here yeah, I yeah, am. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's interesting, you know, how they have to approach the fight when it's like, okay, I don't have because there are some questions about whether you know to what degree, um, you know, parrying with African swords, like to what degree that was a a thing. You know what I'm saying? Um, uh, according to some, you know, European accounts, that that wasn't a thing that they used primarily the shield for defense. Um, you know, so yeah, oh, it's, it's there's definitely um, swords are not designed to be particularly effective for parrying. They are purely offensive weapons. I mean, obviously, you'd parry with them in a pinch, but yeah. looking at the damage to swords that we find in, in museums, we often see that there's there's damage consistent with striking. But right. there is no, not much damage consistent with parrying. Right, right, right. right. So yeah, so it's, it, it's a cultural thing, I think. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and a preference could also to do be to do with metallurgy, how the weapons are built. Not all weapons will actually survive a parry. Right. Yeah, and then that's kind of the thing that we have to negotiate um, when we're doing this. And I try to try to cover my bases as far as that goes. So like a drill where. Yeah, you you don't have your shield, and now it's a matter of hit and don't be hit. And how do you engage somebody in that kind of a match? And it's very interesting to see, you know, how people move, especially when they know they're going to be punished. <laughs> if they, <laughs> if they get if they get cut, if they get killed, and punished if they use their sword to protect themselves. Um, you know, those kind of things are activities that I like to use for training. Um. Yeah, I use a lot of games, a lot of games um, to to kind of help build certain attributes and certain ideas. Okay. 
Any examples spring to mind? Um, well, that was one. Um, and then we do another one, which is the complete opposite of what I had just described. Okay. <laughs> um, where we we do use a um, I'll have people stand on the wall, and uh, they'll work. They'll work. Uh, one person will attack. The other person will will work on uh, parrying and 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 defending with their sword. Um, and, uh, gosh, we have flow drills that we do in order to, cause a, a lot of our, a lot of our, um, our games and our drills come, it comes from taking traditional, the, the traditional, uh, either traditional sparring or traditional, um, games and turning them into drills. So, um, for that example that I just given that I just that I gave you is a it it comes from Mathrag, so it's Algerian stick fighting, um, where in the way that Al- the way that Mathrag is played is one person attacks the other person defends and you guys you kind of trade you know back and forth and the person who's attacking can do any set number of attacks and you have to try to catch all those um, and and defend all those and then you can return the favor. So we would take a practice like that and turn it into a drill where, you know, hey, you're on your wall. You can't retreat. You can't go anywhere. Get comfortable being behind your behind your stick or behind your blade. And then we can take the same drill and then we do it with movement or the same drill. And the idea is while you're defending, you find a spot, a moment where you can break, disrupt that rhythm um, with your own attack. Um, I'm trying to think. It's been such a long time since I've actually been in person teaching sport with anybody. I'm like losing all my mojo. Yeah, I, I know the feeling very well. Um, so Corona, I imagine, has like massively disrupted training and everything in in Austin as it has everywhere else. Um, so how are you keeping yourself fit and active and and still engage with your art while the schools are shut. Well, I'm not keeping myself fit and active as as I should be. <laughs> yeah. Actually, actually, I'm glad to hear that because that means maybe the next time I take your class, I will have caught up a little bit in the leg department and I won't completely die. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I need to get back on the. I need to get back with it. Um, but um, I've been trying to. Uh, we've been having uh, uh, virtual classes. And, um, that's been helping, but it's, you know, it's not quite the same, but it's, you know, it's what we have. Um, so I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to do these little fitness or martial arts based challenges for myself just to kind of keep myself engaged. Um, but you know, it's, it's not quite the same. Yeah. I, what I did is see my, my thing is I'm a teacher first and if I'm having problems with something, if I just have a student to teach it to, everything gets better. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I got to the point where I, I got out of bed and I did my morning training, which that day consisted of literally one squat and no, sorry, two squats and one push up. And I thought, ah, fuck it. I'll do for today. <laughs> and then I thought, and then I thought, you know, this is probably not where I should be and what I'm doing. Cause you know, I had no seminars, all my seminars were canceled. There was no particular reason to stay fit. 
yeah. other than pride. But, <laughs> but so what what I did, what I did is is I um, organized like three mornings a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at eight thirty in the morning. Um, I am online with students and it's it's just a train long where i do whatever my conditioning training ought to be that day as i feel it so you know if i'm having a good day it might be quite intense if i'm if i've i don't know hurt my hip a little bit it might be a bit more gentle and more focused on hip mobility or whatever and the thing is it's actually for me yes. because if the students are there i have to show up right and if the students are there i can't just go you know, do two squats and a push up and go, oh, fuck it, I'll leave for the day. They're expecting me to be there for 45 minutes. Right. And, and suddenly I have access to all of this like, training energy that just didn't exist before. Yeah. Because there are students that are expecting it of me. So I don't know. You might find something like that, you know, maybe get some of your students and get together regularly, you know, over Zoom or whatever. And, you know, you have to, lead them through a, a conditioning session so you have to look good right right which means you, you show no pain right and you might you might throw up afterwards but you don't throw up during yeah you know actually that you that you mentioned that that has been keeping me grounded is that this this whole vert so you know back when i was a younger man um i would do you know i would do everything that my students were doing. Like I was, I was, I was definitely like charging in the front of the battlefield, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah. ah, freedom. Um, that was me in my twenties. Right. right. <laughs> so as I got into my thirties, I started to take it a little easy. You know what I'm saying? I started more yeah. coaching now yeah. in my forties. Like I tend to coach more than I do actually like lead from the front. And what's, yeah. what's, what's, what the, the the Zoom classes have done for me is like now I really can't coach like that. I can't coach. I have to like I have yeah. to go back to demonstrating like that's right. the majority of what I'm doing, which is really good because that's I think the hardest thing as an instructor is like finding the time for your own personal training. Right. And um, absolutely one way to kind of to one easy way to maintain yourself. As like you said, it's like you have people that are there for you, you know, make the most of the time. So I've been it's been good for me in that way that I've been able to do that, which has been really cool. Okay. So so you're running Zoom classes at the moment? I am. I am. Okay. Um where would people find that? If, um, if anyone is interested, just uh contact me. I usually Yeah, yeah, I have, um, I have, I send the link within my group and, um, I can, I'll make that more, I should make it more public on Facebook. I just, um, sometimes I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a little. Okay. So, yeah, so send, send me, send me a link that people can use and I'll pop it in the show notes. And I mean, this, we're, we're recording this, uh, at the beginning of October. It's probably going to go out in the middle of December. Okay. So we're quite some, some way ahead. Um, so, you know, you'll know well in advance when the when the show is going out. So if you if you send me whatever is current, then I'll pop it in the show notes, and anyone who wants to train along with you can can you know get in touch and join in. Sounds good. Yeah, excellent. Good because you know get, getting getting more more people to do your art is is always a it's always a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's I, I realize how much uh, teaching is very not to sound new agey, but very energy energy based 
<clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I have a couple of questions that I normally sort of round things off with. And uh-huh. the first of those is, what is the best idea that you have not acted on? <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, my, it's actually this is my favorite question. Oh, man, the best idea that I have not acted on. Yeah, I mean, some people say, you know, I am so action oriented. I don't have any good ideas I haven't acted on because as soon as I get a good idea, I act on it, and that's a perfectly good response. But actually, there are, most people I interview have have. There's something, maybe there's a book they should have written, or oh, a school yeah. they should have started, or uh, <laughs> something. I like I like how you lay with the book, man. I am the I am I have a million book ideas. Like I've been writing this, um, I've been writing this, uh, gosh, this like fantasy, historical okay. fantasy novel for, okay. it's gotta be two decades now. Been writing. <laughs> it is, it, it is. It must be pretty good by now. Ah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the world may never know. <laughs> that is, um, that's one thing actually just, um, and I, it's kind of part of what I've been going through these past couple of weeks is just um, I wish I wish that I um, managed my time better to maybe have published this book or or even even these uh, the like the the book on the Egyptian martial arts. Like I haven't really I've I work at it. I kind of graze and work on it. So I wish that um I would have gotten that out like last year when I was supposed to. Okay. Um, well, I'm quite good at getting books finished and out the door. So yeah. So if, if you want any, um, you know, help or advice on that, just just drop me a line and I'm I'm happy to I, like advise. I, I do actually. Spe- speaking of books, I, I was meaning to tell you this when I met you at a uh, squash. Um, I actually bought one of your books. A million oh, years you. ago, before before this was even a thing for me, I should have brought it with me really? to get you to sign it for me. Wait, was that Sultan's Companion by any chance? Oh man, what was the title? I can't remember the title. It was specifically on a long sword. Yeah, that, it would almost certainly be the Sultan's Companion. Yeah, because um, that's that's my first book that came out, and it's 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 proved surprisingly enduring. Very nice. People really seem to like it, which is yeah. So actually, actually that, let that be an example to you, right? That book literally changed my life, right? Oh, wow. It was after after that book came out, I started to get contacted by event organizers saying, organizers saying, would you come and teach at our event? Or, you know, the reason I have a branch in Singapore is because a couple of guys in Singapore came across that book in a bookshop and then ended up coming to Finland where I was living at the time to train for a month. Uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. So I would totally recommend getting off your ass and getting your book out the door because you have no idea what it might do for you. Yeah, you're right. Point taken. So that's just a little bit of encouragement for you. Because, all right, so so the best idea you haven't acted you haven't got your book out. That's an excellent one. (laughs) And I'll be very happy to help you get your book out if, if you need any, you know, advice or... Definitely. Or whatever. Just let me I know. can use as much okay. support as possible. All right. Uh, okay. My last question. 
somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts of whatever kind worldwide, what do you do with the money? Oh, man. Okay. All right. So, I think definitely the next phase for at least for like Hama is because I think what, what we have is a we have this movement, this martial arts movement that's going on, you know, primarily for us in the West. And then you have the scholars in academia who are studying uh, their field of study is something related, but maybe not completely the same thing, but something, you know, related. And what I would like, and then also on the other end, you have this, you have these people, these communities that still practice, you know, some of their traditional fighting arts. So what I would like to do is like, I would like to use that money in order to one, create a connect the synopsis between this triangle of interests between the 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 fight forensic guys like myself the the hardcore academics who are in the field and then the people that are practicing these living traditions uh connect the synopsis uh between these three groups and make it so that um one we can travel and work and learn uh directly from uh the communities um, on the continent and from, you know, and then the scholars who have like all this like brain power going to us, like it, it, it drives me crazy. Like it, it does. Like I'll come across like an article, like, you know, military, like military traditions, uh, uh, you know, in, in Ethiopia. And I'm like, oh yes. Like there's going to be something on this, but <laughs> You know, like something specific to the swords, but they usually tend to talk about, you know, other aspects as opposed to like no one's really looking at like the weapons or like the the gear or that kind of stuff. So just to yeah, be, able it's to more like, it's more like the logistics of it or the social impact of it or you know, yeah, how to organize yeah, exactly, culture. yeah, which yeah. is which is great. I, I frustrations myself, which is great, and I give them a thumbs up to that, but. You know, to be able to like sit with us, sit with a sit with a, an academic, and then to be able to to like say, okay, well, what that's what do you know about this particular weapon? Like, when was it introduced into this region? And to be able to have those kind of conversations, um, yeah, to use that money to do that, right. like going there, maybe, maybe organizing some sort of like symposium where you invite like practitioners of the living arts and and scholars on the theory of various related fields and just getting everybody together into a room to listen to each other's presentations and talk to each other. And that could be really useful actually. Yes. Yes, indeed. And even, even and and, and can I come? Yeah, of course, always. (laughs) (laughs) And I wouldn't want to miss that. That'd be brilliant. Yeah. And then on the side of those, of the, of the communities, I think it's really important to invest like energy and capital into these communities in that, you know, being, being from the, the diaspora and researching the dias, the dias, the fighting arts of the diaspora, 
I, you realize that a lot, there's a lot there, but there's a lot that's been lost, you know? Um, and so being able to like show value for these practices, um, and to offer people a means to like make a living and to encourage the like development and the, the, to further these things like that's, that's invaluable. So like, yeah, I would definitely use that money for that, um, for that, that reason. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's a brilliant idea. All right, Damon, I think we are at time. So um, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I'm very much looking forward to you coming back on the podcast when when you launch your book on Egyptian martial arts. Hint, hint, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Damon. I certainly did, as you could probably hear. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes. And I'll be putting pictures of the various weapons that Damon mentioned in those show notes so you can see what they actually look like. And you can also get your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists while you're there. A shout out today, of course, to my lovely patrons on Patreon. Uh, you can find us there at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And it's particularly helpful to me having the patrons there, not just for the financial support, which is lovely, but also the people I can go to to ask for their preferences about what I do next on the podcast, um, advice as to who I should perhaps be looking to interview, and also specific questions for the various guests. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, by all means, toddle along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and join us. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to Maya Soderholm, who is a martial artist, knife designer, and she comes from a very interesting lineage of martial arts and is well known for basically teaching people how to fight with bladed weapons, but without using choreographed drills. So if you want to find out how she does that, Tune in next week. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, and I will see you there. Cheerio.